Um, <clears throat> every time I read the wild goat rocks in this passage, I'm like, this sounds like it's in Colorado somewhere. <laughs> um, we come on the scene here in 1 Samuel uh, 24 uh, with David, who is the anointed future king of Israel. And he's being hunted down by the current king, King Saul, uh, once again. Um, if you've been with us through this series or if you've ever read through 1 Samuel um, and you see the story of David developing, it might have at first seemed like David was going to have a, a swift, victorious life. But instead, his life has been full of trouble and running for his life. David was anointed as future king of Israel back in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel and demonstrated the power of being the anointed one by defeating the giant Goliath and winning a great victory for Israel. But since then, David's ascent to the throne has been rather complicated. Saul, the current king of Israel, has grown increasingly jealous and insecure and self-pitying And he's been going back and forth between fighting Israel's true enemies, who in this era have been the Philistines, and fighting Israel's true future king, David. And up to this point, Saul has already made a couple of attempts on David's life, but David has escaped. And Saul has been so set on destroying David that he had an entire group of priests of the Lord murdered because they had inquired to the Lord on David's behalf. The juxtaposition that has been developing in the story of Samuel between Saul's increasing wickedness and David's faithfulness has been clear. And then we arrive here in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and Saul caught wind that David and his men were in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul leaves the battlefield from fighting the Philistines with 3,000 of Israel's chosen men and sets out to find and kill David. But Saul, as our passage tells us, a little bit comically... Um, has to relieve himself. And so Saul, when you got to go, you got to go, right? So Saul enters into this cave to relieve himself. And the reality is, we all know this, that anytime you're using the restroom, it is a vulnerable thing. But especially for Saul in this moment, because what it means is that Saul has left the protection of his 3,000 men and is not only in the vulnerable state of relieving himself, but he is a mortal man alone in his most vulnerable state. And what he doesn't know is that David and his men are hiding in the innermost parts of this very cave, and David and his men cannot believe their luck. And David's men said to him, "'Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, "'Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, "'and you shall do to him as it seems good to you.'" David's men see this not only as a fortunate circumstance, but as the very hand of God, giving Saul into David's hand to the end, to end the madness of his wicked reign and his vengeful pursuit of David. And David, it tells us, stealthily goes and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And if you've been reading the narrative of Samuel so far, you are deeply rooting for David in this passage. He has done nothing but good to Saul and Israel, and yet Saul has put him in his crosshairs and made his life miserable. And you're ready for Saul to be done for. What David's men are suggesting may sound exactly right to you as you read this passage. You might even find yourself annoyed or angry at David for blowing this opportunity to take Saul down, like he's wimping out by only cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. 
rather than cutting Saul off completely from the land of the living. But what happens next is surprising, perhaps even shocking. David does not regret refraining from taking Saul out, but rather verse 5 tells us that after cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, this is what it says in verse 5, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Rather than Saul being destroyed by David, David's heart is destroyed. It is wounded He is deeply convicted, remorseful for even cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. And not only that, it tells us that in verse 7 that David persuaded his men not to attack Saul. And the language that's used in the Hebrew in this passage, many commentators agree that the translation of persuaded is far too weak of a translation. Because the actual words here are sort of are these words that say essentially that David tore apart with his words the, the, the reasoning of his men and did not permit them to attack Saul. David did not only keep his own ire from Saul, but he is remorseful of cutting the corner of Saul's robe, and his righteous passion is aimed at keeping his men from laying a finger on Saul. He is indignant about it. And if we're honest, this is pretty wild. Imagine you've been doing the right thing and someone in your community or a colleague has trained their sights on you. They sabotage you at every corner, gossip about you in every conversation, demean you, utter lies about you, try to get you fired on false premises, and then they do something really stupid, something that would totally expose them in front of everyone for being a poser and cheating the system, and your closest confidence are like, God is finally bringing the truth to light, and this is your chance. Blow the thing wide open. Show everyone who they really are. And after speaking an ill word of them, you are deeply convicted. And rather than scheming to bring them down to sabotage their reputation, you pour all of your energy into trying to convince your confidants to treat them with respect and dignity, to be gracious toward them, to honor their position and to serve them well. If you can imagine a scenario like that, you maybe, just maybe, catch a glimmer of what is happening in this passage. And maybe this will hit a little closer to home. Maybe some of you, maybe some of us in the United States have a political candidate that's on the other side of the aisle who you despise and you f- who you feel like has made your life miserable or will make policies that you think are terrible. And when the cracks start to show in their career... They start to get exposed for unseemly or even criminal activity. While it always is good, of course, for darkness to come to be brought to light and justice is important. But imagine in that scenario, rather than demeaning, disrespecting, and always speaking the worst of them, you start to find ways to honor them in their office. You pray for them. You desire their good. You start defending them when when possible when possible, in the circle of friends where disliking them goes without being said. Or maybe you've been hurt by someone in the church, and when they start to fall from grace, you find yourself more excited than grieved. Or maybe you and your spouse have a disagreement, and when an opportunity comes that feels like it proves your point, you're so ready to jump on it and prove how right you are and how wrong they are. 
But what's happening in this passage is odd. In fact, it's borderline crazy. David has been chased down by Saul, has narrowly escaped being murdered by him multiple times, and he has been given the perfect opportunity to take him out. And his men even see it as an opportunity for divine justice. And David is heartbroken that he has dishonored Saul by cutting the corner of his royal robe. And he vehemently ensures that his men will not lay a finger on Saul. Why? Why would David react this way? What is his paradigm? Why would we refrain from getting back at those who have hurt us? David sees it not as the right thing to treat Saul as he deserves because of his evil actions. But rather, David sees treating Saul as he justly deserves as a temptation to be resisted. Does Saul deserve to have the corner of his robe cut off as a symbol that he is forfeiting his right to the throne by his wickedness? Yes. Does Saul deserve to have his murderous sprees avenged with death? Yes. Does your sleazy colleague deserve to be exposed for their behavior? Probably so. Does that political candidate deserve to have their career brought to an end because of their ethical failings? Yes. Is it right when an abusive church leader reaps the consequences of their actions? Certainly. Was your spouse wrong when that opportunity came up to prove them wrong? Maybe so. And yet, David sees vengeance and even dishonoring of Saul not as the right thing for him to do, but as a temptation to be resisted. He is intent to treat Saul not as he deserves, but by another paradigm. And what defines how David treats Saul is replete throughout this passage. Twice, just in verse 6, David says this, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. While David knows that he has been anointed as the new and future king of Israel, he knows that God had anointed Saul as the king of Israel, of Israel previously. And even though Saul had acted beneath his office, failed in his responsibilities to the Lord and to Israel, and personally pursued David to kill him, David treated Saul according to what the Lord had declared over him. David is not deceived by the words of his men even when they make it sound spiritual, because the reality is, by the way, what they're quoting when they say that this is what the Lord had said to David, God had never said that. That was their interpretation. Even when his men make it sound spiritual, he is not deceived by their words because he knows what the Lord has declared of Saul and that he had been anointed king of Israel. Now, of course, your coworker does not play a major role in the redemptive history of the biblical story. The politician that you can't stand is not the anointed king of God's people, God's chosen people. And the person that frustrated you or hurt you from your church, past or present, may not be the covenant head of God's people as what's happening in this passage. But we still have to ask this question, what has God said about those people in your life? God has said that every human being, both inside and outside the church, has been made in the image of God. Regardless of what foolishness they have done or what good they have left undone, regardless of what political party they lead or what social cause they represent. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Why does Jesus say this? Because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are profoundly imbued with value because we are made in the image of God. That is what God has declared over every human being. So James 3, verse 9 says that with our tongue of fire, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he says, my brothers, it should not be so. Every human being has been given value as those created in the image of God. And what has God said about rulers, regardless of political party and unethical behavior? He says that rulers are established by God. Romans 13 verse 1 says this challenging thing, especially to us individualists in the Western American world. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Saul was not a good ruler. He was not moral. He was pursuing evil. But because he had been the anointed leader of God's people, David said, I will not touch him. Our rulers are not anointed by God as the leader of God's chosen people, but God still calls us to honor and respect them because God is still sovereign over them. And what has God said about our fellow Christians? Those who also look to Jesus in faith. He has said that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 5 says this. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are made one in Christ through one baptism by the Spirit, and we are called to treat one another accordingly with patience, bearing with one another in love, relating to each other not simply as we deserve, but according to what God has declared over us in Christ, that we are his bride, his beloved, despite our flaws and our failures. Beloved, our temptation is to treat people as they may well deserve or as we perceive that they deserve. But David reminds us that what God has said about his people is a greater metric. What God has said about people is a greater metric than what they may deserve. And so David will not let his men attack Saul and even repents over cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. And not only that, not only does David refrain from treating Saul as he deserves says in verse 8 that afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul and said, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. It's remarkable. After Saul leaves the cave, David went out after him and made good on his repentance over dishonoring Saul and says, my Lord, the king, and bowed down and paid homage to him. He doesn't just refrain from harming Saul. He is actively honoring him, paying homage to him as a king and humbly submitting himself to the office of kingship. And even in his humble, repentant spirit, it does not preclude him from speaking truth to Saul. He says to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men? 
who say that David seeks your harm. By all accounts, this was a very generous characterization that David is giving Saul. Saul is actually has a number of advisors discouraging him from pursuing David. Saul was the chief perpetrator of the false narrative, narrative of David's bad intentions, but David confronts him gently. And he has receipts to prove that he has no intention of harming Saul. His receipt is the piece of robe in his hand that if he had wanted to harm Saul, he could have. And yet he had no desire to harm Saul. So much so that he describes himself as a flea or a dead dog, which is likely a way of David saying, why are you pouring your energy into chasing me down? I am of no threat to you, Saul. I am committed to honoring you and doing good to you. I am as much of a threat to you as a flea or a dead dog, and yet you are pouring out your energy to destroy me. What if we could genuinely say to those around us, those who are opposed to us, those who are rivals to us, those who have hurt us, those who gossip about us, what if we could genuinely say to them, why would you fear that I would harm you? I'm committed to honoring you and doing you good. How might that change the dynamic of our relationships? How would it change our posture to those around us? One of the most remarkable examples of this that I have ever seen or read about came during the civil rights movement. I don't know how many of you have read through Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, but there are a lot of remarkable things in them. And he said in one of his speeches to those who had been oppressed, treated as less than, and taken advantage of by our society, he said, I don't want to give you the impression that it's going to be easy to fight against oppression. There can be no great social gain without individual pain, but listen to what he goes on to say. And he says this with reference to Medgar Evers' death, the lynching of Medgar Evers. He says this, it's crazy. He says, but a physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children and their white brothers from an eternal psychological death, then nothing can be more redemptive. Did you hear what Martin Luther King, King Jr. is saying and calling his hearers to? He's saying, we aren't just trying to free our children from oppression, but as one who believes in Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr. is saying, Medgar Evers didn't just die so his black children would be freed from oppression, but also to free their brothers from an eternal psychological death. As a Christian, Martin Luther King Jr.'s goal was not only freedom from people that, for people that looked like him that were oppressed, but also freedom from the sin of racism for his white brothers. That was his vision of redemption. He was demonstrating. And so much of the civil rights movement demonstrated so well that despite being hunted down for his life, he was no danger to his white brothers. In fact, he wanted good for them that they didn't even want for themselves redemption from their heinous sin of racism. And here is David demonstrating to Saul that he is harmless to Saul. As much of a threat to him as a flea or a dead dog because he is so committed to doing him good. How can David have this radical approach? Not only refraining from harming Saul, but honoring Saul. 
He can do so because he believes that God is a better judge than he is and that God will in the end execute righteous just judgment so he doesn't have to. He says at the end of verse 11, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you have hunted my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David is saying because the Lord is judge and he will ultimately judge the actions and the heart because he is a righteous judge, my hand shall not be against you. Instead, I will protect you and honor you. It's wild, it's challenging, and it is beautiful. David can refrain from harming Saul because he holds in the highest esteem what God says about Saul regardless of his experience of him. And David can honor Saul because he believes God is a better judge. If there is judgment that must be made, it is God's job, not his. And so he says in verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And remarkably in this passage, Saul is humbled by David's words. It says in verse 16 that as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Saul is rightly humbled by David's care for his life, his refusal to harm Saul and even seeking to do him good. And verse 16 says, as soon as David had finished speaking, Saul calls to him saying, my son. And he lifted up his voice and he wept. He acknowledges that David has been more righteous than him. He acknowledges that David had repaid him good when he had repaid David evil. And he acknowledges that what David has done is bizarre. He says in verse 19, if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? And that's what you have done. And Saul finally acknowledges in this passage the truth that he has been running from in all of his pursuits of David, that David will be king of Israel. The kingdom of Israel will be established in his hand. Saul will ultimately lose the throne to one more righteous than himself. To David, who refuses to take the throne by his own hand, he will be given the throne by God. And as Saul sees David's current mercy, he begs of David his future mercy, asking that David would not destroy Saul's name or his father's house, pleading that David would do a profoundly countercultural thing to protect the children of the rival king rather than to destroy them to ensure they don't try to regain the reign of kingship. And if David has no problem swearing to Saul that he would protect his lineage, he has already promised this to Saul's son, Jonathan, and now he promises it to Saul. And David swears that he will not only continue to do Saul good despite his evil, but that he will do good to Saul's offspring when he ascends to the throne and this leads us to the final reminder of how David can offer this insane graciousness to Saul. How could David swear to do good to Saul's family after he becomes king, knowing that very often rival kings' families are a danger to the king? Of course, it helps that Saul's son Jonathan is David's best friend and a beautiful brother in the Lord. 
But the primary reason that David can promise this to Saul is because he knows that the Lord is good on his promises. David was anointed in chapter 16 by Samuel to be the future king of Israel. David was a, went into battle against Goliath with confidence against his superior foe because he said, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And he says that this will happen for all the assemblies so that they may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David has experienced God's faithfulness. And so he says in, in verse 23, 14, it says in 23, 14, that Saul sought David every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David has confidence that God is good on his promises so he, can't, so he can actually let go of self-protection and swear to Saul that he would not snuff out his offspring. A profound contrast is drawn in this passage for us this morning between Saul who knows his kingship is doomed though he still sits on the throne and is hell-bent on self-protection, pursuing David day in and day out to take his life from him, returning evil for good, giving lip service to serving God and his people, but living a life of empty trust in God and trapped in a cycle of jealousy and vengeance. And David, who has been promised the throne, but whose life has been made a living hell. By the way, it's helpful for us, I think, to remember that David goes 15 years from being anointed king to actually becoming the king of Israel. His experience of waiting and being pursued and experiencing suffering is a long one. He underwent years and years of living and hiding, narrowly escaping Saul's pursuit, and the episode in our passage will not be the last one. And yet, despite his circumstances, he chooses to do no harm to Saul. David refrains from harming Saul because he values what God says about Saul more than how he experiences Saul. And David honors Saul and, repay, and pays him homage because he believes that God is a better judge than he is and will deal with Saul appropriately in his own time. David promises to do, to do good to Saul and his family because he believes God will be good on his promises to David. But the difference between David and Saul is not just that David is a good person, our takeaway this morning should not be to just be like David. If that is your takeaway, you may be nice to people who hurt you for a little while, but bitterness will ultimately boil over. What this passage is actually calling us to is to entrust ourselves to God. David sees God as he is. And Samuel calls us to look to God, to this God who has given value to every human life and has put rulers and bosses and authority and who has counted the whole of his church as his bride and brothers and sisters of one another. He is calling us to entrust ourselves to God rather than to take matters into our own hands. But what if you, like me, find yourself prone to getting in your shots when you can? looking for ways to undermine your frustrating and maybe immoral coworker, taking the opportunity to get a sarcastic dig in on your family member who has hurt you, seeking out echo chambers where you can let your cynicism about your least favorite political uh, politicians thrive, struggling to refrain from gossip about those who have hurt you in the church. What if it seems impossible to do good to those who have harmed you, even on purpose? If that is you this morning, beloved, 
What you need is an experience of the grace of God. You see, the most remarkable thing about this passage is not just that David does Saul good, though it is remarkable and commendable. It is that God is still giving Saul opportunity to repent even when he has been wicked and rebellious, doing evil to God's anointed. What God is giving Saul is a profound experience of grace despite his rebellion. He has already forfeited the throne by how he has lived, but he can still live in harmony with God and with David if he would repent. He's been caught in the act of pursuing God's anointed, shaking his fist in the face of God. And when he has been, was profoundly vulnerable and alone in the cave, unaware that his life was not in his own hands, but depended on the mercy of another, he was shown grace. He was not treated as he deserved to be treated, but David loved him. Even when Saul dies several chapters later, David would lament his death. God, through David, has shown Saul God's character. He has shown him his grace. Years ago, when I was um, an intern with RUF, a campus ministry at the University of Tennessee, uh, there was this big basketball game. University of Tennessee was playing Florida. They were both ranked and it was all the talk of campus, and I didn't have tickets, and I really wanted to go to the game. And uh, one of our students um, wasn't planning to go to the game, and you could take, the students had free access, you could just swipe their ID and go into the game. But you know, it's kind of against the rules to take somebody else's ID when you're not a student and uh, swipe into the game. But I thought we had the perfect plan because his ID was pretty old and his face was basically completely rubbed off of the ID. So I was like, this is a golden opportunity, no problem, I'm going to go to this game. So <clears throat> I'm in line, ready to go into the game, everybody's piling in, I swipe the card, and it turns out that the card was so old and scratched up that the swipe did not properly work on the machine. And so they pulled me out of the line and said, hey, why don't you just step over here while, so we can keep the line going. So I step over to this other little desk, somebody has a computer, and they have me swipe the ID again, and they're like, what was your name? So I say, Sam Moon, or whatever, I think that was the student's name, straight up lying. And uh, they're like, okay. And they asked me a couple more questions, and I'm answering these questions, not realizing that while this ID has a scratched off little picture, as they brought up his information, they have a giant photo of him on their computer screen. And they were like, uh, I'm sorry, but it's obvious that you were not this person, and we're actually going to have to confiscate his ID, and you're not allowed to go into the game, and uh, he's going to actually have to go to the judicial office to get his ID, um, because you can only have a certain number of these infractions. And I mean, I just like went from just like going to a basketball game to being like, I am a fool. Like, not only have I tried to cheat the system, I've gotten caught. I have lied, I've gotten caught lying, and I have gotten one of my students in the ministry that I work with in trouble, and now he has to go to judicial affairs. I'm just like, I mean, I just felt miserable. So I walk outside, I leave the game. I still want to go to the game, so I was trying to see if I could find a way to buy a ticket, but all the scalpers outside were cash only. This is before the time of Venmo, so I can't buy a ticket. All the ticket offices are closed because the game's already uh, started. And I'm just kind of walking around the edge, edge of the building and this security guard opens the door. <laughs> and she's like, 
hey, can I help you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm trying to get into the game. I don't have a ticket. I was trying to see if there's someplace I can buy the game. And she was like, honey, I'll give you a ticket. I've got two extra tickets, and I'll give you one. And she gave me a ticket. <laughs> and I went and attended this game. And it was, I mean, it's just a basketball game, right? But I was so shaken. I was so rattled. <laughs> Having been shown this profound grace, I was shaken by the experience like Saul was shaken here because even though I was trying to take advantage of the situation and was caught in the act, rather than being thrown out and sitting alone at home to think about what I had done, I was given a seat at the table. I was invited to receive and enjoy and be a part of this beautiful communal experience. I was shown grace that I did not deserve and it beautifully shook me. That's what we need, brothers and sisters, if we're going to show this kind of grace to those around us, to experience this kind of grace from God. Saul initially repents and admits his wrongdoing, that he's done evil to David and what David has done, that David has done him good. But our passage actually closes by telling us that Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold because just two chapters later, Saul was going to be after him again to kill him. It shouldn't surprise us that part of what Saul pleaded for from David is for David to not destroy his name. Because even in his apparent repentance, Saul is consumed with self-protection. But what Saul needs to recognize is that his hope is not in killing David or in procuring David's favor. And brothers and sisters, what we need is to recognize that our hope is not in getting the upper hand or getting our way or getting back at those who have hurt us. Saul's only hope is to live with open hands to the mercy and goodness and favor of God. That's what's offered him, even though he ultimately refuses. But brothers and sisters, God offers that to us this morning in his grace and mercy in Jesus. David honors Saul. David promises to do good to Saul and his family, not because he's a good guy, but because God is trustworthy. God is a God who shows grace to rebels and gives even the most vile of sinners the offer of mercy. Would you receive it this morning? I'm going to take questions for us and then we'll move to the Lord's table. If we have questions, once again, I'm always a little insecure that my, uh-oh, my sign-in had failed. That's not great. That's right. I will try to log back in. Sorry about this. I don't know. My. Uh... That's right. <laughs> I actually do have it. Um... I know, right? Okay. I'm in. Your account isn't ready for voice yet. All right. Well, never mind. Sorry for that. We won't have any, take any questions this morning unless somebody else has the uh, access to the questions. I know at times others have had access. Well, sorry about that. Um, but uh, a couple things I will say that I, I anticipated coming up in questions um, but didn't include in the sermon is um, one of the questions that always comes up in these kinds of things is do we just let people keep hurting us? Do we just let injustice go on? Injustice go on? And it is important to note, like I said, that David goes up to the stronghold after this passage. He knows Saul. Um, he knows that even though Saul has been shaken and wept in this moment, that it is wise for him to still go into the stronghold. 
Um, so even though David offers this profound grace and does not treat Saul as he deserves, David is still wise in how he relates to Saul. Um, and I do think that's important for us. It's actually not loving to allow others to continue to go on in injustice. Um, but what this passage is calling us to is to respond to injustice, not with doing evil, not in like way, but instead with mercy and wisdom. And that's a very different thing. The tendency of humanity is to respond to ungrace with ungrace. And what we need is for the chain to be broken by the grace of Jesus and to enter into that with responding with grace. And it's a really hard thing to do, which is why we have to go back to God's mercy over and over again. It's the only way. Um, there's a lot more that could be said. There's a lot of nuance uh, in these things of when do we make sure that we are seeking out justice and pursuing justice when people aren't being held to account. Those are all good and important questions that I think we do need to engage with those things. But again, I think the demonstration of it in the civil rights movement, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever, the, the Civil Rights Museum in um, Atlanta at the Martin Luther King Jr. The, a memorial that you can go to. And I mean, the videos, I don't know if you've ever seen these of um, people doing sit-ins at diners and that sort of thing. You can watch videos of, uh, of our black brothers and sisters sitting um, at seats in these diners and having folks come up and literally uh, put the ashes of their cigarettes onto their heads. And they sit in silence. It's profoundly difficult. But by God's mercy, it changed the course of history. <laughs> because they didn't respond in kind and in violence, but they demonstrated to the United States that desperately needed it what it meant to actually live out the love of Christ. It showed how evil what was being, how evil the evil was that was being done to them. It made clear that what was being done was wrong and that something needed to be done about it. Um, these are complicated situations to know how to engage with them, but we at the very least need to slow down and pray and sit in receiving God's mercy before we can even begin to know how to do this and live this out um, in our lives. That being said, let's move um, to the Lord's table. Um, and the biggest encouragement that I have for us in coming to the Lord's table is simply this. If you struggle to show grace, if you struggle to show mercy to others, what this table is is an experience of God's mercy and grace to you. If you struggle to show grace, then please come and receive grace. This is what you need, is to receive grace, to taste of it, to drink of it. I love the tactile nature of the bread and wine that God knows us well enough to know that we actually need physical signs and symbols to remind us sometimes that as surely as we can taste this bread as surely as we can smell and taste this wine, so surely is God's mercy and grace for you. Will you receive it this morning? If you don't want to receive mercy and grace, then don't come to this table. But if you want mercy and grace and look to Jesus for that mercy and grace, even though your faith is wavering and you often treat people the way uh, that they deserve or maybe that the ways that they don't even deserve, but you need grace, then come and drink. Come and eat. And know that Christ, the Bible tells us that even while we were enemies, laid down his life to call, his, call us his friends, to call us his sons, to call us his brothers and sisters. 
come and eat and drink of the mercy of Jesus at the table. Let me pray for us as we come up in rows of eight or ten to eat and drink. Father, thank you for these ordinary elements, this ordinary bread, this ordinary wine that demonstrates to us your extraordinary love. As shocked as we are by how David responds to Saul, remind us, Jesus, how much even more beautiful it is that you would enter into the flesh, that you would become a man, that you would lay down your life so that we might be counted as righteous. Lord, you have given us grace beyond measure. Feed us and fill us with your grace. Show us what we are never going to be able to show one another fully, but feed us and fuel us by your grace this morning, we pray. For Jesus' sake and for your people's good, amen. Come and eat, come and drink.